Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. He came to this first Sunday at Salabac and he heard Rick Warren say this, Jesus Christ was the smartest man that has ever walked the planet. He didn't hear anything else. He didn't hear Rick Warren say anything else except that comment. And he thought Christianity founded by someone who was the smartest guy that's ever lived. It was such a shock to him. He, he hadn't considered that the word smart and Christian could possibly be in the same sentence. That ultimately, everything that he's been pleading for, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, turn to God, rend your hearts, not just your garments, rend your hearts. Don't worry about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but turn your heart. If you've been following the prophecies of Jeremiah, you may note that some were fulfilled within his lifetime, but others wouldn't be. So what causes someone to work towards something if they're not going to see the fruit in their lifetime? Well, Dr. Corbett asks that question tonight in his message, They Shall Ask the Way to Zion. So as we look at God's word, you might want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 50. We're going to be looking at verses 3, 4 and 5. And I want to invite God to speak to us this morning. Father, as we open up your word, I pray that your word will open up us. Father, for those things that we've brought to the house of God today, the questions we have, the doubts that we have, the struggles that we're battling with. Father, sometimes all it takes is one word from you and everything changes. So Lord, I pray that people here what they need to hear from you today in order to be able to live closer to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at this passage and the, the title of this is They Shall Ask the Way to Zion. And I, I guess I, I need to put some terms on the table so that you understand that when we refer to Zion, we're referring to Mount Zion and Mount Zion is where the temple was and Zion became the catch-all word. It became the name given to where God dwells. It's the presence of God. So when, when the psalmist talks about, um, come let us go to Mount Zion, that yes, it's, it's physical in the sense that he's thinking that's where the temple is. It's, it, Jerusalem is kind of a narrow thing and it goes up a hill and the temple was right at the top and, and so it captured this concept of where God was. And so we're going to see in this passage that Jeremiah the prophet is saying the day will come when there'll be several significant things that will happen. And the most significant is that it will enter into the hearts of people to say, how do we get to Zion? Would someone please show us the way to Zion? So that's what we're going to look at. The opening clip showed you the crowning of Nebuchadnezzar as the world emperor. And this was Jeremiah is giving this, this passage at a time when Babylon was indeed the world power. And it, it seemed like they were unstoppable because Nebuchadnezzar was conquering everything before him. And we're going to see in, in this verse that he prophesies at a time when he himself, I guess, is a victim of, of what has happened. He's going to prophesy that 
Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar in particular, is going to meet his downfall. So let's have a look at this, shall we? We're looking at verse 3. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, that is Babylon, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. Now, what you may not realise is if you read through the book of Daniel, you actually see that exactly what Jeremiah has prophesied here, which, again, we just got to put it into the context that this would have sounded unbelievable. There was nothing stopping Babylon. Nothing was stopping Nebuchadnezzar. He was doing whatever he wanted, going out, conquering and conquering and Here, Jeremiah says, it won't last. You will see this. A nation will come out of the north and will make this land a desolation. And as we read through Daniel, we we come to chapter 6 of Daniel, where suddenly in one night, the entire Babylonian empire is overthrown by the Medo-Persian empire. In one night, exactly as Jeremiah had prophesied. So that's background to this prophecy. That's so that we've got a little bit of historical context here. So this really did seem like a, a very unlikely thing that would happen. And in, in, I'm going to suggest in a very similar way to many of the things that Jesus said, which sounded incredible. Now, if you're, if you're a credible person, it means you're believable. If you're incredible, it means you're not really believable. You don't have any credibility. So if someone comes up to me after the sermon and says, that was incredible. I'm probably not going to take that immediately as a compliment because to be incredible is to lack credibility. And what Jeremiah was saying seemed incredible. That Babylon would be no more. It was astounding. And yet he gives it as a prophecy to the people who'd been taken away captive. This would be a sign that what I am telling you and what I have told you in my book is indeed the word of the Lord. I think Jesus gave something similar in Matthew 24 when he predicted, he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left standing upon another. That was was incredible. You You can hear it in Matthew 24. The disciples go, what? What? And Jesus proceeds to answer their questions they said how can this happen when will this happen and what will be the indicators that it's about to happen and he and he gives it in Matthew 24 and we know that in 70 AD that is exactly what did happen it seemed incredible and here Jeremiah's done something similar it seems incredible so in one sense this prophecy would serve as a sign to those who were in Babylon that what Jeremiah said was true. In fact, when it did happen, we read in the book of Daniel that Daniel reached for the scrolls of Jeremiah. And we read in chapter 9 that Daniel says, I was, he says, verses 1 and 2, I was reading through the prophecies of the prophet Jeremiah and I realized a few things. And he talks about this. Now, as we consider the next verse, it's a beautiful verse. It talks about people's hearts being changed to such an extent that it has an impact on them physically 
And something enters into their heart and mind where they go, I don't care about anything else. Right now, I just want to meet with God. Can someone tell me how I can do that? I want to do that. I've seen our forefathers. They thought they were doing it by having sex with temple prostitutes. They thought they were doing it by just coming to the temple and coldly, religiously doing religious duty. We know they didn't have a relationship with God. I really want one. Someone, please tell me, how do I get to Zion? How do I get to Zion? And if you think about it, this is everything Jeremiah has been pleading with the people for. And he announces that it's going to happen. And and, and you think about what on earth has taken place in the heart of someone if that's the transformation that takes place. And here's my question. What does it take for someone to turn to God? What does it take? Maybe you know someone and they're not a Christian and, and you've had maybe some hostile discussions with them. Maybe you've been trying to share why Jesus Christ really is worth full devotion. Maybe you've been trying to share with them that they need to turn to Christ or they will risk eternal peril and they just don't get it. So annoying. They don't get it. I I heard, um, I, I was listening to Jay Warner Wallace, Jim Wallace, who's written an excellent book called Cold Case Christianity. He was a cold case detective He took several hundred cold cases to court and he never lost a case. And his wife started going to church. She was actually going to Rick Warren's church. And the only reason she went, she told her, her husband, is I want our kids to have some sense of right and wrong, to have some sense of moral. So she, she said, I think Sunday school would do them good. So she just bundled them in the car and took them to church. And do you have a Sunday school? Sunday school? Yeah, we have a kid's church. And uh, we, we actually went there as well. It was uh, a saddleback. And, and this is where we, Ruby went into this thing, it, I, I kid you not, it is armed, guarded. There are armed guards at the front of the kids' church. Literally, pistol on the side, hip. I, I may have told you the story. I went to take a photo of Ruby going into this six-story kids' church. Uh, it's, this is a church that has a membership of 30,000, by the way. And there goes Ruby, and I get my camera out. It's like, cute. there she goes into this thing. And the guard comes up, put that camera away now, sir. And he's going like this, put that camera away now, sir. I go, anything you say, anything you say. Anyway, that's where Jim Wallace's wife took the kids to Kids Church. And the kids are coming home and they're, they're, they're sort of having fun and they're enjoying it and, and talking. And, and, and so she decided to stay in the church service while, while the kids were in Kids Church. And Jim started to notice that his wife was not there on a Sunday morning and so he decided to go and he went and he heard Rick Warren say this and Jim Wallace at that point was an aggressive atheist aggressive atheist and he had Mormons in his family background and some Catholics on the other side and he was very aggressive that that Christianity was was a load of crock and He came to this first Sunday at Saddleback and he heard Rick Warren say this, Jesus Christ was the smartest man that has ever walked the planet. He didn't hear anything else. He didn't hear Rick Warren say anything else except that comment. And he thought Christianity founded by someone who was the smartest guy that's ever lived. It was such a shock to him. He he hadn't considered that the word smart and Christian could possibly be in the same sentence. And he prided himself. This is a cold case detective who'd never lost a case. 
And so he said, okay, I'm going to use my cold case detective skills to check this Jesus out. Well, if you don't want to be a Christian and you go on that route, it can only end in one way. He discovered that Jesus Christ was indeed what Rick Warren said, the smartest man that's ever lived. And he discovered that he had some pretty profound things to say and he discovered that what he said would happen did happen and he was left with this horrible conclusion. He describes a horrible conclusion. This was it. I did not want this to be true. That was his conclusion. He said, but I had one big problem and the problem was the evidence. The evidence that Christianity was true was undeniable. And he said it created a problem for him. Because it wasn't the lack of evidence that was his problem. It was that he didn't want the evidence to be what it actually was. What does it take for someone to turn to God? Oftentimes we think it's just a real, if I just have the right words, a really good argument. And as I put in this week's e-news in the pastoral desk, pastor's desk article, Jesus gave one of the most powerful things we can offer the world in John 17 verse 21. And if you want to know more about it, check it out when you get home. What Jeremiah is saying, that ultimately everything that he's been pleading for, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Turn to God, rend your hearts, not just your garments. Rend your hearts. Don't worry about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but turn your hearts to him. And ultimately, that prophecy where he's pleading with Jerusalem to turn to the Lord, don't just be religious, don't just come if we can put it in modern day vernacular, don't just come to church on Sunday and look like you're entering in and look like a Christian and do the Christian things and put on the mask and then leave and have no regard for God, his ways, his word, his will. Don't do that. Don't claim to be a Christian and never pick up the bread of life throughout the week. Don't do that. But let something enter into your heart. It says, God, feed me, teach me. Ultimately, the day would come when all that Jeremiah had been pleading for would be fulfilled. But there's a but. And this is, I suggest, probably what Jeremiah knew. But it would not happen in his lifetime. I just think this is profound. Everything Jeremiah had perhaps been feeling like a failure about, everything would happen. Everything that he thought was a mark of success would happen. People would turn to God with their whole heart. They would forsake their wicked ways. They would turn to him, but not in his lifetime. And they would do it because of him. Verse 4 of chapter 50 says this. In those days and in that time declares the Lord. This is, by the way, the 70-something-year-old Jeremiah prophesying this. The people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. Now, if you can appreciate the history of Israel is that under King David, you had... 
this very narrow strip of land. And to the north were ten tribes called Israel or Ephraim. To the south were two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And under David, they were one. Under Solomon, they were one. After Solomon's son Rehoboam became king, the ten northern tribes said, no way, we are not going to... We are not part of this anymore. And they appointed their own king. They, and the temple, of course, was in the southern part in Jerusalem, which is a part of what became known as Judah. So Benjamin was absorbed into Judah. So you have these two nations, Judah to the south and Ephraim or Israel to the north. And the longing of God was that one day they would come together and be one again. And here's Jeremiah saying this, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. And it says they will come weeping, weeping as they come. And here's the third thing, they will seek the Lord. They will seek the Lord their God. They will seek the Lord their God. Here's... Perhaps two, if we can assume that repentance is seeking God. But here's two indications of true, authentic repentance that Israel is displaying. This is immense. This really is important. Because we live in Western culture, and Western culture idolises the individual, idolises the maverick, idolises the one who goes against the flow, goes against the stream, is not a part of a community, but is that maverick. James Bond is kind of the epitome of the loneliest hero you'd ever hope to see on the silver screen. You know, how many people have looked at James Bond and gone, man, I'd love to be him. He can fly a helicopter underwater. He can fly a rocket ship. I, in fact, I saw Roger Moore once. He, he landed a lunar module. Um, in the Pacific Ocean um, with, a, with a girl that happened to be wearing a bikini. It was like, it was just, what are the chances? And under her spacesuit was a bit. Anyway, and, you know, James Bond, this, this quintessential man who doesn't need anybody. You know what? I feel desperately sorry for James Bond. Um, no family, no real close friends. Treats women like they're a contest. That's no way for a man to live. So what is it that God wants us to do? Here's the, the true indicators of repentance that Israel displayed. Firstly, tears. Tears are often an involuntary response to something God is doing in the heart. Tears are actually... Amazing, you know, I'm not a, a medical person, but I'm told that when you cry, there are certain endorphins that the act of crying releases into your body. It's a side issue, but if you are grieving the loss of someone and you've never cried tears, you're depriving yourself of God's design to bring healing to your soul. In the spiritual sense, Jeremiah says they will come weeping, tears of repentance, a physical sign of something God is doing internally. Here's the other indicator that they, truly repent, that they will truly repent. They will be attracted to the community of God's people. 
whenever I hear someone say, the church hurt me, now I still love God, I love Jesus, but I want nothing to do with church, you know, I just straight away think, you are a hurt, rebellious person. And I know that the word hurt and rebellious often don't go together. But I'm sorry, I'm just telling what I, how I see it. Because the very thing that God wants to bring healing, I mentioned one, tears of repentance, and community. When someone says, I'm no longer a part of that community, you read John 17. You read what Jesus prayed for his people to be a witness in the world. You read how he says, Father, that's family language, by the way. Father, I pray that they, my followers, will be one, that they will come together as one, be one, as you and I are one. Father, family language. You know, the person on your left, the person on your right, the person in front of you, the person behind you right now is your family. This is your family. This is your family. And God says he places people, Psalm 86, he places people into families. You may have had a lousy dad. Here it is, Father's Day. Don't want to make too much of a big deal about it because I know for some people this is actually a sore point. Same with Mother's Day. But right now you need to know God is a father who's worth trusting. And he places you into a community where he will give those missing aspects to your life and grace them through someone else to you. You know, a father will do things. A father will say things. A word of encouragement. A father might say, do you think that's wise? A father will do things. And you may not have had that, but you come into a church and you'll get it. I guarantee you, you'll get it. Because God will ensure it. Healing. It's one of the surest signs of true repentance when people show tears and are attracted to the people of God. And they shall seek the Lord together. That's what church is about, isn't it? Isn't that what we've been doing today so far? Jeremiah's prophecy began to be partially fulfilled in 70 years. He said this would the people of Judah would be in exile for 70 years, then they would return. And we read Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see that's exactly what did happen. They came back. And so what he said... They came back. They will ask the way to Zion. Why? Because after 70 years, the generation that went there were largely dead. They died off. So you've got people who were going, we, we want to go back to a homeland, a homeland we've never been to. How do we get there? How do we get there? So it has a physical sense, but it also has a very spiritual sense as well. Next verse. They shall ask the way to Zion. There's our text. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. And so we see it began to be fulfilled and it was ultimately fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And as we read in Acts chapter 2, we read that there were people from all the tribes of Israel assembled in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and they heard the announcement of this covenant, the everlasting covenant, the covenant that said it's not about you, the covenant that said it's about what I've done for you, the covenant that says I don't care what you've done, I want you now to come to me and acknowledge that you need my grace and my forgiveness. I want you to come to me and ask me to save you and I will because I will take your guilt, your shame and 
and the centre of the covenant is Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. And I will take your guilt, your shame, those things that you think no one knows about, but I saw, I see, and I will take them and I will put them on my son on the cross so that you can stand before me guiltless, white as snow. And it says on that day, and that one day, 3,000 people said yes to Jesus. And you know what? Every day since then, just about, more than 3,000 have continued to say yes to Jesus. Every time someone now gives their heart to Christ, someone repents, that prophecy in Jeremiah is being fulfilled. That prophecy is being fulfilled. Isaiah the prophet gave the same prophecy in chapter 2 of Isaiah as well. What do we learn from this? I hope you can see that Jeremiah's prophecy teaches that with God there's always hope. There's always hope. It doesn't matter how hopeless your situation looks. With God, there's always hope. I hope you can also see that here's Jeremiah, faithful, faithful in his ministry. It teaches that whatever we sow into others, we may not see that harvest reaped in our lifetime. This is a marvellous thought for us as a church. What will this church be like in 400 years? Because I don't expect that any of us will be around then. So what are we putting into place now? The first domino. Maybe we're a part of the first dominoes. And in 400 years, there'll still be dominoes falling because we were the first ones. What are we putting in place? What are you putting in place generationally for your family? How are you modelling how to handle life's difficulties? That will have fruit beyond your life. And we see the heart of God in what Jeremiah is saying. The heart of God is for his people. And this is what God wants. We see it in this passage, that, he, that God wants his people to turn to him in humility. Not arguing over whether they need forgiveness, but humbly acknowledging they do. And that's the first part of repentance. And the second part is coming into community. You know, when Adam sinned and God came down in the cool of the day to the garden, Adam's first response was to run from community. He fled. He ran. And if the, natural, the most natural tendency in your heart is to flee coming into your family on a Sunday, maybe you need to go, hang on a minute, maybe the devil's put that into my heart. Because this is not God's will. God's will is that I come and I find healing, grace and forgiveness in the midst of community. And here's, I think, a really big one. You being faithful to God, day in, day out, taking your Bible either on your device or however you read your Bible and you faithfully reading every day and letting God's word nourish your soul... No one else may even know you're doing it. But, but here we have an indication that your faithfulness to God, the fruit of that faithfulness, may not be something that you're always going to see. But it's going to have an impact on your children, on your neighbours and your colleagues. And here's, I think, a big one. 
Jeremiah's motive in serving God clearly couldn't have been to get the reward of seeing his prophecies come true and everyone going, oh, Jeremiah, you're such a wonderful prophet. Look, oh, yay for Jeremiah. Yay for Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah knew he wasn't going to get that. And yet he continued to be faithful to God. That's a real challenge. It's a challenge for me. How much am I prepared to serve God even though no one else claps or cheers? Are we prepared to do it? Here's the lesson that I think we get from Jeremiah. Would you stand with me now? Father, I pray that you see every heart, every heart now, that, Lord, we would be a people that say, God, have your way in us. We would be a people that say, Jesus, we want to be faithful you, faithful to you no matter what the cost. Father, for those perhaps who have struggled, Father, for those perhaps who have found it difficult to be faithful, I pray, Lord, that right now you would put your word, your courage, and your Holy Spirit into each one, that they might have that courage that they need to be faithful. And perhaps you're here today and you think there is no way God could ever forgive me. Boy, have I got some great news for you. He already has. He already has. You just have to receive it right now. And you can do that. You can do that by praying a very simple prayer, a prayer that says, Oh God, I ask you to forgive me. I ask that you take away my guilt, my shame, and help me to live clean and help me to live for you. Teach me what I need to know. I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 The fruit of our faithfulness to God is not always going to be seen by us. So our motive for being faithful is His glory, not our reward. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, They Shall Ask the Way to Zion, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.